Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to read in a moment a few, a few words from there. Um, before we do that, I, I'm, well, I'm going to read verses 14 through 22, um, even though our text is mainly in 16 and 17 today. But before we get into the, the formal preaching session, what we're going to do is uh, turn to one another after we read the word and pray, um, both for our time together. Uh, we've done this before, but we want to spend the time in prayer, just one or two minutes. And I ask you to pray for three things. And they're all the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven for his rule and reign. And then give us this day our daily bread asking for that grace. So I'm going to read our passage, and then I'm just going to ask you to turn the person next to you uh, and just pray for a minute or two that the Lord would do these things in our midst, bringing him praise, but then also asking him for these things. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's take this moment, turn to the person next to you together and pray those three things. Our God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, will be done on earth as is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we say together, hallowed be your name, holy are you. We ask, Lord, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth, in our church as it is in heaven, that we would submit to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask for the grace, and the food, and the nourishment, and the resources that we need, our daily bread. We'll need it again tomorrow, we'll ask again tomorrow, Lord. We ask that we would be constantly relying on you, Lord, not on ourselves, not in our own resources, not in our own strength, but in you. Lord, we humbly approach you with praises and petitions, asking that you would help us to submit ourselves, that you would help us to hear your voice and obey with joy. Lord, we thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us. It's your name we pray, amen. This is not necessarily any sort of news flash, uh, but something that we Christian Americans struggle with is the, fa the fact that if you are a person who has believed the good news of the gospel, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, 
If you are a true Christian, then Jesus requires you to give up your whole life for him and his way. There's no part of it that we're allowed to keep back for ourselves and say, no, this is mine. That's why we prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my heart as is in heaven, that rule and reign of Christ. This is the foundational point, really, though, that underlines our whole series so far in these last few months. Jesus doesn't offer you and me some sort of good eternal life insurance policy that as long as we just we're required to go to church once in a while and make sure that we pay our dues, then we're fine. Jesus requires his followers to give up their whole life. He requires his followers to live according to his way and his words. In fact, a believer, someone who is trusted in Jesus Christ as their savior and king, has become a new creation. We have a new identity in Christ. And it's not a singular identity. We understand that. From the beginning, we learned that believing the gospel doesn't set us off on some sort of individual holy pilgrimage, but rather it joins us to the body of Christ, to a people. We've changed kingdoms, right? We, we were in darkness, and now we've gone to the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus, or the kingdom of light. From those who are far away from God to those who now have been united in Christ with him and his people. Being a real part of the local church is a way then for us to witness to the world and to one another that we wholeheartedly believe the gospel and understand that there's ramifications for us as believers. Believing the gospel, therefore, has ramifications for each individual believer, but it's bigger than that. It has ramifications for us as his church. Today, what we're going to look at is the gospel and what it does in making us a church who participates in communion who takes part in the Lord's Supper. And this is our main point today. The church has been given the sign and meal of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper, and so Christians should properly celebrate the Lord's Supper. Christians ought to properly celebrate the Lord's Supper as he gives us his ways. Why? Well, there's two reasons. Like Everything should come back to why. We understand that. But the first thing is the one that we're all going to get right on the test. Uh, we ought to. Like, it's obedience, we know that he's commanded it and we're supposed to do this. But the second one maybe is a little less obvious. So the first one is we ought to, but the second one is that we get to. Now, I recognize that that's a matter of opinion and perspective, but the truth is it's an incredible blessing for the church. And we'll circle back to these two at the end again as we work through the sermon. But for now, let's just remember that this is where we're headed. Christians should properly celebrate the Lord's Supper. Last week, we asked the question, what is the Lord's Supper? That's where we began, starting to understand. And through Exodus 12, and then through Matthew 26, we saw that the Lord's Supper is a sign and meal of the new covenant. That it is a ceremony that points us to the wonder and work of the new covenant through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. And so the Lord's Supper is a sign that reminds us of the benefits that we receive in the new covenant, but it's also a meal that we enjoy the benefits of Christ afresh. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue today. Um, this was an important starting place for us, but it's not quite enough to stop here. We need to ask the bigger next question then, uh, what does the Lord's Supper do? We've had a really good foundation to understand that Jesus made this, he remade the Passover, and it fully declares that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And we understand that, but we want to ask then for us, what does it accomplish? What does this do? 
And I want to stop just for a minute before I go on here and recognize that when we talk about, well, I want to talk about for a minute expository preaching. Now, that may seem like a strange diversion, but for a moment, I think it's right for us to think about this. When we, dis- when we consider coming to the scriptures, and you normally hear me preach, what we normally do is go to a text, we work through the whole text, we work through the wording, we try to understand the context on the front side and the back side, we try to understand the canonical context, so that's how it fits in with the whole Bible, then we try to understand what the author is trying to tell us what he's trying to tell his audience, and then, of course, here in 2020 in Virginia Beach at Cornerstone Bible Church, what we are supposed to do with that truth. This makes sure that we understand the importance and the foundational nature of us hearing the Word of God, Him speaking into the world that He created, and it was meant to be heard and responded to. Now, when we consider, though, what this series has been like, it's been very different. We certainly have gone to Scripture a lot, But if you have noticed, we've come about it asking questions. Uh, The gospel, what is the gospel? Uh, What is baptism? What does it make us? The Lord's Supper, church discipline, the keys of the kingdom, church membership. We're asking all these questions of the text and then looking for answers within the text. This is a good thing. We're asking it to help us understand, and this would be called topical preaching or more, I think it's right to say, theological preaching. We are taking from the scriptures and understanding how it addresses certain issues and helps us to do so. It's a good endeavor. It's a right thing for us to do. It helps us remember that scripture is true wisdom, that we should look to it for our final authority and not our thoughts on something. Not the way like, what should we do about baptism? How are we going to make that work out? No, we come back to the text and understand both its biblical background and understanding how Jesus talked about it, and then as the early church continued to work it out, we're learning from the text. We want it to inform us. We need to do this. It instructs us in righteousness, and we realize that it will cause us to look at several different texts and to help us do the work of theology. Now, I'll just put this out there. That is ours to do. These are thoughts as you read one section of Scripture, and you read another section of scripture, and you're trying to answer the question, how do those things work together? It seems like they almost contradict. As you're working through that, we're doing the process of theology. How do we best do that? Not just by picking up a theologian who's looked at it, but continuing to read the word, continuing to read the whole word, continuing to ask questions, to pray that you might understand and submit yourself, and then continue to work to see how those things work together. So this process is a good one. And this is the sake for, uh, for the case, excuse me, for our topic today. We're coming at it from a theological perspective. We're going to look at many different texts and ask, what does the Lord's Supper accomplish? What does it do? But uh, to answer that, again, we're going to have to look at a couple different places to understand what the Lord's Supper does or accomplishes. But again, this shouldn't upset us. We shouldn't say, you know, I'm not sure if we're just like proof texting this and proof texting that and like you're only quoting one verse. Isn't that kind of dangerous to do? Absolutely. That's one of the reasons that you set aside my time to spend hours in the Word and making sure when I quote that one text, I'm not taking it out of context. And so that when we come and we bring these things together, you realize there's an understanding here that this is what Paul is saying or this is what Jesus is saying. And it's not uh, adverse to what the rest of the context would actually say. So it shouldn't upset us. We should see it as a way for us to read the scriptures rightly and hear it speak into our lives. So when we come to communion, 
the Lord's Supper. We don't turn to page 333 under subsection C and say, communion, oh, this is what it means and this is what it does. We recognize that it's not a Bible dictionary or it's not an encyclopedia or it's not like an owner's manual for our life. Certainly, it serves in many of those ways, but that is not the way that this is done. The way that the, the Bible is constructed is unbelievable. It is the big A author, God, bringing together so many different human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to construct a beautiful narrative and to instruct us in who he is and who we are then as his creation and how we're to respond. So we must understand and approach this in this way. I just want to make sure we understand that as we ask this question. We seek to answer the question, and I'd ask you to consider these texts with me as we look and ask, what does the Lord's Supper do? So I've got four answers for that question. What does the Lord's Supper do or accomplish? Number one, the Supper reminds the church of the sacrificial death and atoning work of Jesus Christ. Say it again. The Lord's Supper reminds, key words is reminds. What does it do? It reminds the church of the sacrificial death and atoning work of Jesus. In Luke 22, 19, Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper with his, with his followers there. And he says, and he took bread, and when he had given it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. And then you know this phrase, this do in remembrance of me. Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians 11, and he actually goes further than that. He says it about both things. He says, uh, and when you'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the Lord's Supper here is instituted as a memorial ceremony that we would remember the truths of the gospel. It is to be set aside for the church as a remembrance and for us to commemorate the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. We get this. It's not too hard. The Lord's Supper is a memorial ceremony. And it it is a time to remember his atoning work on the cross and all that is accomplished by his unthinkable act, that he would give his life, the God of the universe who created everything. Remember there's two categories? There's everything and there's God. Like those are the only two categories. Either it was God or it was everything else that he made. It's the creator God putting on flesh, submitting himself to the Father, giving himself for us, taking the cross seriously to the point that he allows the wrath of God to be poured out on him instead of you and me. This is what we remember when we remember at the Lord's Supper, the salvation that was ours only through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as he took our hit, what we deserved, because we have rebelled against our creator and we're accountable to him. There's no other way out. It's either we pay for our own sin by judgment and damnation or Jesus Christ took it at the cross. And this is what we proclaim. We remember that this is true. The Lord's Supper reminds the church of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But number two, the, Lord, uh, sorry, the Lord's Supper nourishes the church. In each gospel account, so you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, in Mark 14, and in Luke 22, we have all similar accounts, and the Lord clearly states in all three of those, you are to take, you are to eat, you are to drink. These are actions of reception to take this. 
But what exactly does that mean? I mean, is it simply a physical action of the holding of the bread in your hand or, uh, you know, of them eating and drinking? Is, is, is that it? Last week, we looked at John 6. If you remember this, in John's gospel, he brings even more dramatic language to the table, that the disciple must eat his flesh and drink his blood. I want to read for you from John 6, 47. Just listen, or you can turn if you want, but I'll read it. Truly, truly, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the true, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The eating of Jesus' flesh and the drinking of Jesus' blood, get this, is something that you and I, if we are true Christians, do as we believe in him. This is where we start at the beginning, right? If you understand Christ properly, if you have trusted him completely with your whole life, this is what John is talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about, excuse me. He is saying, I am the true food. Remember how this all started in verse 47. Remember how he kind of started this whole section? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. When we receive the Lord's Supper, we must do so by faith. As we partake and as we receive and as we eat, we recognize that we do so by faith and trusting Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are nourished by whom? What, the crackers and the juice? No, by the bread of life. Not like manna in the desert that were thousands of years ago. Those guys all died. Jesus' point is like, you eat of me, you trust in me, and you will live forever. Eternal life is through this. And it's not just through these physical pieces. We get that, right? They don't have anything special in them. If someone gets them afterwards and they get a hold of them, they somehow have eternal life. That's not what Jesus' point here is in John 6. He is showing, he says, those who believe in me, they will have eternal life. And we, therefore, are nourished by the bread of life that comes from Jesus Christ alone. He, he is the bread of life. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says this, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, what in the world is he talking about? This idea of participation. What does it mean to participate in the blood and body of Christ? You've probably heard, if you've sat around preaching for long enough in your life, you've probably heard this Greek word, so I'm not trying to impress you, but koinonia here, this word, this idea of participating, has the idea of participating with or sharing in 
or close fellowship with the one that you're joining with. Later on in verse 20, if you notice, Paul will say that the pagans are participants in demons. The idea here, as we take a look, when we take and when we receive the supper, we receive or share in Christ and his benefits. We attach ourselves to and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ by faith as we take the supper. It is an act of worship that strengthens our bond in Christ. And therefore, it's right for us to say that through the supper, we take, we receive, we eat, we even, even like so clearly eat and drink, participate and share in Christ. We fellowship with him as we partake in the communion table. And through the fellowship then, we are strengthened in Christ and we grow in grace. The Lord's Supper, therefore, nourishes the church. That's the second thing. The third thing, the Lord's Supper proclaims Christ's death until he comes. Now, if you notice this or not, but this is actually a theological statement. Jesus didn't say this. Paul did. What I mean here is that as Paul looks at what Jesus did say, and as what the early church practiced, and as he knows the law well, he knows what Passover is all about, and he understands that a person's walk says something about what he believes, when he understands the importance of the actions of the local church, he comes up with a theological conclusion, and he makes this statement. Paul is saying this. He understands when the church obeys and properly takes the Lord's Supper, it is making a proclamation of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One day we know this. Christ will return. and We look forward to that day. But on that day, it will be too late for those who have not repented and trusted Christ. But until that day, the Lord's Supper stands as a proclamation to the world that there is salvation in the atoning work of Jesus Christ as he died on Calvary's tree. If you're joining with us today or you ever heard this through, let me just give you a quick presentation of the gospel. The first thing is that God is our accountable creator. He made us. And all men, all men are accountable to him. And he is righteous and holy and perfect. The problem is us. We were born in Adam's sin and we committed all of our own. I could tick off all of the Ten Commandments and more. And I guarantee that we've, all, we've done almost all of them. And that's the worst. We now have offended and rebelled against a holy God. But there's good news. God knows and there has to be judgment. There has to be judgment for sin. There has to be an answer. He cannot clear the guilty. He sent himself, Jesus Christ though, to pay the penalty where you and I could not. It's not like if we do enough good stuff, if we just do enough good stuff, then he's kind of okay with us and we kind of join our works with what Jesus Christ did. No, none of that. It is by Christ and Christ's sacrifice alone. The pouring out of the wrath of God on Jesus Christ. He took the hit. And that's why we worship him. He is the only one that could do so as a perfect man, as perfect God. And as such, we rejoice. Because there's a fourth thing. So you have God, you have man's sinfulness, you have Christ coming. There's a response, though. There must be a response and a turn. If this is true, there must be a response all the way back to the beginning that we recognize that we must trust and believe this God and be completely given over to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul talks about it as faith. 
we must trust, we must believe in him and him alone. And if we do, we will have eternal joy in him. We will have the forgiveness of our sins as we trust him. The point being, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, that's the message that we proclaim, that all of that centers on the person and atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The very act of communion, then, is the proclamation of Christ's death until he comes. The fourth thing, though, is something that perhaps we don't hear very much about, but I think it's important for us to do so. The Lord's Supper affirms and marks off the church from the world. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22, where we started out this morning, Paul is helping the church understand that they cannot participate in the Lord's Supper in Christ and participate in demons. That would be like going to the Feast of Demons. Uh, there, the church cannot, by doing so, they're trying to have two lords, two gods in their lives. And they can't do that. Because at verse 20, 22 says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Like, who's your real master? Are we stronger than he? Like Paul's kind of throwing it back on them. What do you think you're doing? You can't have two lords. But as he's explaining this, the Corinthian church, to, to the Corinthian church, he reminds them that the Lord's Supper does something incredible. It binds the church together in a way that they all ought to be concerned about the actions of each individual believer within that body. In verse 16 and 17, Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Think about this. In verse 16, we understand that each individual Christian participates and fellowships and receives Christ and his benefits in the Lord's Supper. But then Paul turns to make this shocking point that we're kind of not ready for. He states that because there is one bread, Jesus, we who are many individual Christians are one body. Why? He answers, because we are all partaking in the one bread. In other words, when the church properly participates in the Lord's Supper, it is taking many individuals, these Christians, and affirming them as the true church. Now, I will not go as far as to say that the church is made, it's a little bit too strong, made at the taking of the supper, uh, because we know that this is actually done by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, just kind of a page over, Paul says this, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, the church, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is speaking about the holy reality of the regenerate church of Christ. It is a putting together, a construction, a making that happens through the conversion of an individual by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what we would call salvation. The church is not made by the Lord's Supper, but rather by the Holy Spirit. However, we have to wrestle with verse 17 then to understand what Paul is talking about. What does he mean, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body? If we all partake of the one bread. Now again, I think this is better language for us. It's better to state that the church is affirmed through communion, through the Lord's Supper. We can see that verse 16 here gives us, and Jordan hinted this at the beginning, helps us to understand the vertical relationship a believer participating or fellowshipping with Christ through the supper. 
But in verse 17, now we're introduced to this horizontal relationship. Through the vertical nature of many individuals partaking the Lord's Supper, verse 16, Paul is actually showing that they are now connected to one another. They are now one body because of their connection to, in the one bread, verse 17. Therefore, think this through. In the supper, the church affirms and marks off the true church from the world. It is the true church who is to take communion. When the church participates in the Lord's Supper, many individuals become one body. One local church who show their unity and fellowship with Jesus Christ by receiving him together. These are the things then that the Lord's Supper accomplishes. It reminds us of Christ and what he's done in his sacrificial death. It nourishes the church by his grace. It proclaims Christ's death until he comes. And it affirms and marks off the church from the world. But before we go any further... I think it's important that we recognize that these four things do not get accomplished simply by getting a group of people together for a ceremony. Maybe we should actually say that these four things that they're supposed to do, this is what the Lord's Supper should do. Four things that the Lord's Supper should accomplish. I say this because of 1 Corinthians 11. Now you should say, isn't that automatic, like if you're doing it? The problem is, in 1 Corinthians 11, we have a major problem in the church. There's a problem, and it's that the church is not participating in the Lord's Supper correctly. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 20, Paul says that they are, what they're doing is not the Lord's Supper. In other words, he's showing us that it's possible to do communion without ever communing with the Lord. You could go through all of the motions and not actually be participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ because of some of the things that are being unearthed in chapter 11 here. He's showing us that this tragedy could come true of any church that would not properly understand the nature of the church and what they're doing in the Lord's Supper. We ought not then to miss this very important opportunity to see from the Corinthian believers and how Paul addresses it, how we ought to also then act in the Lord's Supper. We need to also understand, as we humbly look at this passage, we should ask the question, how do you participate properly or correctly in the Lord's Supper? We certainly don't want to do so in a way that would somehow proclaim a different gospel or be negligent about his words and what he has given to us here. So as we ask of Scripture, and as we look, and I'll tell you the truth, as we as elders have worked through this entire thing together, we prayerfully and carefully would give you three things that will help answer this question. How are we to participate in the Lord's Supper correctly? Number one, the Lord's Supper is best and most significantly celebrated as the gathered church. This is not an ordinance of the family. It's not an ordinance for Christians to just gather up on the sidewalk and have communion there. It is an ordinance that is given for the gathered church under its authority. Not under the elders' authority, under the gathered church's authority. The authority that's vested to them in the gospel that proclaims and understands Jesus Christ as their Lord and that it matters for their community. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, and watch this. I want you to see, because you're going to hear me kind of uh, accentuate a few words, and you're going to get to the end and realize what I'm trying to do. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, 
it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Skip down to 33, the other bookend. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. I think you can probably hear what's going on there. The assumption here, the straight line here, is that it is when they come together that they eat the Lord's Supper, when they gather as the church. The whole context is talking about the gathered church in Corinth. Through a communion, like we've just talked about from 1 Corinthians 10, many individuals are one body. This is an ordinance that is given for the church when they come together. Now, if anyone was here, like between 10, 30, and 11, you realize that we're in contradiction a little bit already, that we had two services today. We recognize that this is something that's very symbolic and that we want to do. You've probably heard already some hints of this before, that we desire to meet together how important this is. We don't believe that it's a necessary sin to do so, but we realize the importance of the symbolic nature of gathering together beneath the word and to receive Christ's gifts in the table. So we recognize that it's very symbolic and important for us as a body to look at this and figure out the best practice for us as we move forward. And that's one of the desires that we want to meet together in one body. As we do so, we recognize the gathered church is where Paul talks about the locus really or the location of where the Lord's Supper is practiced. So that's the first thing. The second thing, when we ask this question, how should we participate in the Lord's Supper correctly, is this. The Lord's Supper is to be taken by the visible, affirmed church that submits to one another in unity under the gospel. This means that the Lord's Supper should be taken only by those who are truly regenerate. They're actually Christians. It should only be taken by those who have been baptized into the church of Christ, those who have made their profession of faith public and have committed themselves to the membership of a gospel-preaching local church and are willing to submit themselves to the authority of other believers in that church. Those who have been affirmed by the believers upon a credible profession of faith and a life that is lived in accordance with the gospel. This is what part of the keys of the kingdom are that we recognize and submit ourselves to the authority of the rest of the believers in the church. The body of Christ is revealed or affirmed through participating in the Lord's Supper. We saw this back in 1 Corinthians 16, 10, 16, and 17. And if you consider this, for us to welcome to communion those who have not made their profession known publicly, those who are not submitted to the authority of the local church body, this really is to be quite negligent and really, it's a, to approve the handing over of the keys of the kingdom to individuals who are not willing to submit to the rest of the body. And really, it's saying you are to keep and shepherd your own souls in this way. This isn't about, I can tell you this for sure, this is not something that we as elders really were so excited about talking about. But we realize as we look at the scriptures how important it is in 10, 16, and 17 that as we join in this act, it proclaims to the world who the affirmed believers actually are. It's not about getting more people into membership whatsoever. It's about proclaiming the truth about what the supper actually is to be doing. 
The truth is we realized that we weren't completely serious all the way through what the Lord's Supper was supposed to be. And we recognize that we need to take this seriously. Those who have formally committed in church membership have declared that they are true Christians and are willing to live in accordance with the gospel as a member of his church. They've explained their faith in Christ to the church. They've obeyed in believers' baptism. And they've been observed and interviewed and affirmed as Christians by both the congregation and the elders to be true believers. And they are willing to submit to the rest of the body for the sake of growth in Jesus Christ. Truth be told, on earth, it's the best of our knowledge. These ones are the ones who have true communion and participate in the body and blood of the Lord. And so, the Lord's Supper is only to be taken by the visible, affirmed church of Christ. When we look at baptism and church membership all the way a, few, a while ago, we saw how important it was that it was not done by some nebulous group. We just got a bunch of Christians together. It had to be by a real group that knew who these people were and could say, yes, they are Christians. They understand the gospel, a local church. We saw that baptism and joining this church in membership was an act of the church who has taken the time to get to know someone, understanding their relationship with Christ and affirming that they really are Christians. In Christian baptism and membership, the church affirms a person's regeneration and then portrays it in what has happened in this life of new Christians through the waters of baptism. In the Lord's Supper, we find the same thing is true. Baptism and church membership, if you can kind of think about it this way, are the front door saying, yes, we are part of this household. At the Lord's Supper, we sit down at the family table to eat and to fellowship with Christ and with one another. In the Lord's Supper, believers join around the table and commune with Christ, and as we learn from 10, 16, and 17, with each other. That idea, koinonia, fellowship both with Christ and with one another. That's the second thing. The third thing, the church should partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Now, that does not mean that we are to make ourselves worthy to come to the table. This often gets kind of screwed up. We think, then the next verse says, examine yourself. Oh, I'm supposed to do really introspective things. I'm supposed to make sure I get every different thing cleaned up before I ever come to the table. We certainly hope that we are regularly confessing sins, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. When he looks at this in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, we'll see something very different. Let me just read it for you. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What's going on here in chapter 11? There's divisions, there's factions in the church. Some are getting drunk and others are like starving to death. We have some huge divides socially, practically, racially. They are maybe different philosophies. In the church, there is huge problems and they are not loving one another. They are not communing. They are not sharing. They are not participating. They are not listening to Jesus' words in John 13, 35. They are not to the, a picture to the world of love for their brothers and sisters like Jesus loved the disciples. And so when they take of the supper this way, it's an unworthy manner. And so when Paul says, examine yourselves, He's trying to say to us, make sure as you think about your relationship with the rest of the body that there are no divisions. 
that you would not be separating yourselves and not willing to love another person? If so, you know what to do. Go make it right and confess your sin and work it out between the both of you. Because in the act of communion, in the act of the Lord's Supper, as we participate in Christ, it declares our union with him and then our union with each other. And so what Paul's saying in, in chapter 11 is that this isn't true. You don't love one another. And so what you're doing, it isn't even, even, it isn't even the Lord's Supper because you are choosing to have these divisions among you. And so we ought to properly, as he says, discern the body. Now, what does he mean by body? Yes, the body of Christ. Jesus, make sure we understand him. But he's also talking about the body of Christ, the body that we belong to. If we do not discern or understand or designate or understand that we are part of that and how we are to interact with each other, when we do the Lord's Supper, we bring damnation and judgment to ourselves. And this should help us understand we need to take John 13, 35 seriously, that we would love one another to the point that there is no partiality, there would not be divisions, there would not be factions in our body at all, whether it's rich or poor or racially or young and old or whatever the case may be. None of those things should be evidence that we have something that would keep us from actually participating in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. This is about unity then. This is about loving one another and the very nature of the supper. And this then, to return to the first statement I made, why should we be participating in this? I made the statement, a Christian should properly be taking the Lord's Supper. A Christian should properly be communing with one another and, and take it properly in communion. Two reasons. One, you, you need to, you ought to. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to. But now consider the next that you get to the immense blessing of being part of his church, of proclaiming his death until he comes, of being nourished, having the grace of Jesus Christ as we are gathered together, as he has created us in Christ in this one body through the supper. It is now something for us to enjoy because of his great grace, and we wait until he comes back to completely unite us in the consummation. We look forward to that day, and this is how we participate in the Lord's Supper for the glory of God, and for our good. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we want to bow ourselves to your word and your way. We ask that you would help us to learn from your word and therefore obey. Would you keep us from selfishness and pride? Would you keep us from the fear of of, of, of doing things our own way and that people would find out and they'd be upset with us. Lord, help us instead to love one another. Help us to be vulnerable, understanding coming to the table together as Christians declares that Jesus Christ saved us. And that's what we need, a loving and gracious king who gave himself for his sheep. We thank you, Lord, and ask that you would continue to work in our time together as we come to the table, that we may come by faith, that we would trust you and receive your benefits today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I could have the guys who are going to serve us this morning, communion, come up to the front. Now last week I said that there would be four questions and we covered three of them. There's one that I did not cover. And the question is, how should we then approach the Lord's Supper? In this time as we come, be ready to eat this, the, the bread and the wine. How should we approach the Lord's Supper together? I wanna give you four thoughts here. First, brothers and sisters, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to the one who made you 
and then gave himself for you. Look to your salvation, the atoning work of Christ on the cross with joy and wonder and awe and thanksgiving, all the things that come with it. Then I'd also encourage you, maybe metaphorically, to look around. We talked about the vertical relationship, but this is not just you coming to talk to God and participating in this. You're not individual units only. In Christ, we are now, as we commune together in him, we are one body. And so it is right for us to consider one another and pray for each other. And if there is any separation within our church body, there ought not to be. Then you should make it right. Go to the person, the brother or sister, and confess and get it right so that we would not have these divisions so that we might properly participate in the body and blood of Christ. So I'd say it is right in a sense, metaphorically, to look around and consider what God has done in his church. Third, look ahead, and I I mean time and thoughts. The kingdom of God is coming in fullness, and one day we will sit and eat at a feast with our Lord. Jesus says, I will not drink again of this cup until I come in my kingdom. He knows there will be one day where we feast together, and this should cause us to hope in God and what he has done and what he will do. Fourth, look inward. It's right to look inward, but it's not right to stay there. I think we get this idea that before we do the Lord's Supper, we should kind of do penance in our seat and make sure we cover up all the sins and make sure we confess them all before it gets too late. It's right for us to look inward, and it's right for us to be confronted with our sin, but it ought always, always to drive us back to the cross. It ought always to help us think that we could never bear it ourselves. And then what we needed was Jesus Christ to do so. Confession and true repentance are necessary and they're good and they're right. But wallowing in guilt or performing some kind of penance by self-loathing can never bring us righteousness, never. All of our confession and repentance should drive us back to our need for Christ. The Lord's Supper proclaims that the debt has been paid and our punishment has been taken and that now we receive the benefits of Christ's work on the cross. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.